Good morning, and uh, it's great to be here with you, not only to worship and sing, but to, um, I don't need this. Do you remember when I was here, when I preached the last time, I promised I wouldn't do a PowerPoint, so I'm not. (laughs) I don't need that, so I need the space. All right. It's good to be here because uh, not only do we get to sing and, and, and praise God and worship together, but we get to open God's word. And we get to hear something that God has for us today. And that's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to first of all thank Neil last week. Uh, great job, great introduction to what I have to uh, deal with uh, today. Uh, and Neil did something uh, last week. He, even though he, were, he was looking at chapter 2, he took us back to chapter 1 to look at a verse. I'm going to do the same thing. It's verse uh, 4 of chapter 1. I'm going to read it to you. If you have a Bible like mine, a red letter version, you'll notice that this is written in red. And I I know I've said this a hundred times from up here. When it's in red, it's really important because the Lord said it. And this is what the Lord said. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John the Baptist baptised with water, but in a few days you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit. There's three very interesting words in that uh, verse that I'd like to bring to your attention because as we go through chapter 2, you'll see these three words coming up time and time again. They're very important. The first one is the word gift. But wait for the gift. What's a gift? You know, I, I, I was thinking about how to explain this. You know, give you, and, and, I, and there was two birthday girls in this church yesterday. And I was going to ask them a question. And neither of them are here. Anyway, doesn't matter. A gift is something that's bestowed or acquired without any particular effort by the recipient. I was going to ask them if they did anything to get the gift. Anyway or without being earned. That's what a gift is, isn't it? You don't earn it, and, and there's no effort required in, in receiving the gift. And it's a very similar word or similar thought to the word bless, because the word bless means to bestow good of any kind upon something or someone. So that's the first word. Keep that in your mind. Something bestowed or acquired without any particular effort by the recipient or without being earned. The second word in that first chapter, in that verse in chapter chapter one, is the word promised. That's why there's no PowerPoint. I promised. I wouldn't do another PowerPoint. But this is far more important because a promise is a is a declaration that something will or will not be done or given an express assurance on which expectation is to be based on. That's what a promise means. It's an assurance that what was promised will be delivered. You You can bank it. Take it to the bank, as they say. And then the third word that I'd like you to point out to point out to you in that little verse is the word me. You see, that's really important. The source of the gift 
And where does the promise come from is important because it's in red. It's from the Lord. And even though the Lord didn't promise um, here, he says that he, he, he heard this promise about this gift from who? From God, from his father, the originator of the, the one who's going to give it. So it's really important that we look at that. So I just thought I'd share that with you this morning because it really ties in with everything that we're going to be looking at the next uh, few minutes that we're together. The Acts of the Apostles. Interesting title. You know, theologians argue whether that's the right title. title. Some people say it should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's true. could be that as well. But you know, the fact that it's called the Acts gives you the impression there's a lot of action, a lot of things being done, and that's true as well. But let me tell you something. There are 19 significant speeches or addresses in the book of Acts. 19. Eight by Peter, one by Stephen, one by James, and nine by Paul. And the people that work out the content of Acts tell us that's 25%. So one quarter of the book is about words, speeches, people, things say. So, yes, the acts are important, but also the words, the things that they say. So let me set the scene of uh, the portion of chapter 2 we're looking at today. I know you probably thought, that's a strange place to start, verse 12. But I thought that was an appropriate scene. That's where Neil sort of more or less finished. And we have this, this crowd, and it says there they were amazed and perplexed. Now, who were the crowd? Who were the crowd? That's really important, you know. It really is important. Who was the crowd? They were God-fearing Jews. We heard last week they were devout Jews. Now, what does that mean? It means that they, they were, they were practicing Jews. And they were in Jerusalem and at Jerusalem because of all the feasts that were happening. God prescribed feasts. God asked them to do these things, you know, the Passover, all the feasts, and Pentecost was part of it. So all these devout Jews were there because of their religious observance. So they were God-fearing devout Jews. In the crowd, a large number of them were international Jews. You know, I'm glad we didn't have to read all those uh, places again this week. But they were... They were Jews from all over the the then known world, particularly the Near East in the first century AD. So that was the the makeup of the crowd. But I want you to remember this one thing about this crowd. Very, very important. They were God's people. They weren't the rabble of Jerusalem. They weren't Gentiles. They weren't the dogs. You know, the, you know, the Jews didn't like the people that weren't Jewish. They called them the dogs. Who was the crowd? They were God's chosen people. That's interesting, isn't it? In light of what's been going to be said. His chosen people. You know, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, God said to Moses, he was going to choose a people. They were the ones that were down in Egypt. 
and they were going to be his people and he was going to be their God. And then to the, to the crowd that gathered in Exodus in chapter 6 verse 7, God actually says to the people, you are my people, I am your God. Very clear. The Jews are God's people, chosen people. Does that ring a bell to you? That's really important to note. So in verse 12 we have this crowd who is amazed and perplexed. You would be, wouldn't you? We heard about the rushing wind and the, the uh, tongues of fire and then they hear all these, all these uh, strange... Not strange, not strange. They, 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 they noticed that they could hear the sermon, the things that were being said in their own language. 16, there's 16 regions mentioned. There's at least 16 probably more different languages. And so all this was happening. And of course, they would say, like it says here, what does it mean? What does this mean? You would be doing the same thing, so would I. You'd want to know, what is, what's going on here? And it's then that we start from verse 14. In, in NIV it says, Peter addresses the crowd. It's then that Peter stood up and addressed the crowd. Note the opening. Fellow Jews. God's people. Fellow Jews. And he says, he says, now, listen really carefully here. Because what he was going to tell them was of vital importance. It normally is if it's from the word of God. He says, now listen, these people are not drunk. And that's strange. You know, of all the things that you could record, why would that be recorded? Why, why, why explain when somebody makes a, maybe an off-the-cuff remark, you know what's happening? They, these guys are drunk. Why, why have it recorded for all of eternity in the scriptures? Orthodox Jews, that's what they were. They were observing the religious practices. An Orthodox Jew did not eat or drink before nine o'clock on a Sabbath or a holy day. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? They couldn't have been drunk. Because when this happened was before nine. That's interesting, isn't it? Why? Because it's God's people. They understood all this. God's people. And then, uh, as we, uh, someone read, I think it was Sam read the prophecy in Joel, he, he ex- starts to explain to them what's going on. Peter explains the weird events as a fulfilment of the prophecy of Joel. And, 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 he, and he told them what it was. But I don't know if you, if you notice, if you, if you look at the prophecy of Joel here, and you go back to Joel chapter 2, there's a slight difference in the beginning of the little passage here. In, in Joel it says, after this, but here it says, in the last days. I appreciated the reading of the scriptures uh, about the Holy Spirit because it, it mentioned already some of the things I was going to mention. When the Spirit was promised, the Lord elaborated a little bit of the role and it was mentioned in those verses. One of the jobs for the Holy Spirit 
is to teach. To teach God's word. To remind the people of God the things they should know. First opportunity. First sermon. The Holy Spirit's right on the, right on the ball. He's made a little change to Joel chapter 2. Verse 28. Instead of after this, Peter stands up and says, in the last days, and he goes on, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So right then and there, the spirit's right on task, saying, that was a prophecy for back there. Here we are. It's happened. A fulfilment of that prophecy. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 was then. Here it is. It's now. This is it. And so Peter emphasises that with the coming of the Spirit, so has come the last days. That's very significant. To the Jews, to the people of God, to what they knew, to what they were expecting, to the promises they were given, that was significant, very significant. And since the coming of the Lord Jesus, it ushered in the last days or the messianic age, as the commentators are saying, that's significant to you and me as well because you and I are living in the last days, the same days. The coming of Christ when he came you know, to Bethlehem in the little baby and, and all that record we have in, in uh, the Gospels, that's the first coming of Christ. That started this event, this, this prophecy. And as you read through the prophecy in verse 20, it says, uh, before the coming of the great glorious day of the Lord. Now that's another time. That's another event. Not the same one that we remember on, in December. So we have the Lord coming in Bethlehem the first time. And then we have him coming again. The time in between. The last days. That's where we're somewhere in there. Hopefully right. I hope we don't have to wait 300 years. What was that 300 year thing? You know? The Lord's coming soon, brother. You know? But I know what you mean. We're hoping, we're hoping that the Lord comes soon. But this is what Peter is saying. He says something significant has happened. It's ushered in the last days and not before too long the Lord will come and then the day of the Lord. So the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord, two different things. Keep that in mind. So the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was the final proof. It was the, it was a proof of the fact that they were living in the end times. And, you know, for the Jew, for the people of God, then that was the promise. You and I, we're waiting for that trumpet call. That's what we want to hear. For the Old Testament Jew, this is what they wanted to hear. And Peter is saying, when you see this, this is it. Verse 22. Men of Israel, 
So who is he talking to? The Jews, the people of God. Not, the, not, not a mixed multitude, not a crowd of, of whoever. Men of Israel, the whole nation. He's referring to the whole nation. He says, listen to this. If you're a preacher, this is a great sermon model. If you're an aspiring preacher, this is a great sermon model. If you want to know how to put a sermon together, this is a great sermon model. Because, you know, Peter could have gone into Joel and he could have explained a whole heap of things, but he didn't. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, brothers and sisters, Peter is trying to focus the attention of this crowd on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, he is the focus. He's always the focus. We should always be focusing on him. Always. That's what Peter does. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. He could have rambled on. He could have gone back to the Old Testament. He could have talked about a whole heap. Nope. Jesus, of this is the first sermon ever empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what are we focusing on? The man from Nazareth, Jesus Christ. Amen to that. You know, we can get caught up about prophecy and we can miss the reality of what's happening. That's what they did. They were caught up with all sorts of things, prophecies, religious observance, doing the right things religiously. And they missed the reality. Christ had come. The Messiah had come. You know, I've got a weird imagination, as my home group can attest, but I sit and think to myself, I can just imagine, you know, when the Lord was being arrested, when the Lord was being tried, when he was being beaten, when they were putting the crown of thorns, when they were nailing to the cross, I can just imagine in the synagogues, in the temple, reading the scriptures, reading about what was happening down the road. The prophecies of the Messiah, what was going to happen to him. They were reading and they were pontificating and they were, you know, giving us giving their opinion. And it was happening before their very eyes. They didn't even realise it. Jesus of Nazareth, what about him? What's special about Jesus of Nazareth? I'm sure they didn't say that, but I'm sure they probably thought that. Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God. Accreditation. We know something about accreditation, don't we? Mm -hmm. To be accredited, what does that mean? It means officially recognised as meeting the essential requirements. Okay? And it means provided with official credentials. Now that's important. You know, if you're in a doctor's thing, clinic, or if you're doing engineering stuff, you know, you have to be accredited. You have to officially be recognised as meeting the essential requirements. But, you know, it's important. That's important. But it's, it's just as important as who does the accrediting. Yeah? No point in me being the accrediting the uh, people at the clinic. I'm pointing to Kay because she tells us about all the accreditation they have to do at the medical clinic. No point in me doing that. 
all the engineering. Here, Jesus of Nazareth was accredited to be the Messiah, the Christ, by God. Can't get better ticks than that, you know. All those ticks that you get, you get, you can't get better than that. But then Peter elaborates a bit more. He doesn't say that. He leaves it at that. He says, he says how that was done. And in this passage, we have four ways in which Christ was accredited. First of all, through miracles, wonders, and signs. Now, in First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-two, the Jews, God's chosen people, always required. A sign. I don't believe you. Give me a sign. In fact, all through the Gospels we see the Jews saying that to the Lord all the time. They wanted a sign. In John chapter 2 verse 18 it says there, Then the Jews demanded of him, Jesus, that's the Lord Jesus, uh, what miraculous signs can you show us to prove you have authority? And of course, we know there was plenty of signs. And then the Lord himself in John 4 says, unless you people, now the Lord basically spoke to the Jews, he says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. But the first thing, first thing Peter said, I, 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 I chuckle because I think to myself, how thick are these people? Because the first thing Peter shows them is, the signs and wonders and miracles that this man of Nazareth did. You know, they weren't just all international Jews. There would have been many Jews who were resident of Jerusalem. And what was happening up until this event, everyone knew about. They knew about this bloke from, from Nazareth going around preaching. The Jewish uh, religious leaders knew that. The leaders of the law knew who he was. The people that he you know, heard what he said, they seen what he'd done. There were witnesses everywhere. And then it says that, that uh, he was put to death. And this is important because the Lord Jesus was was hounded by the authorities, and and they tried so often to get rid of him one way or another, even to the point of plotting his death. And you know what? That was in the scriptures too. In the Old Testament scriptures that was there. He would be put to death. And then Peter mentions that God had raised him from the dead. Again, this was, this, this was known. He said that you know this. You know, you, 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 know, you know about this. It's not something that I'm making up. And in spite of their plotting, you know, they tried to you know, put a guard, or a Roman guard around the tomb. And all. It's in spite of all that, they knew that this man of Nazareth had been risen from the grave. And Peter reminds them that the Old Testament scriptures predicted or prophesied or foretold this very event. This is why it's a model sermon. You know, Peter didn't say, oh, you know, I think. He didn't say, oh, in my opinion. Oh, you know, that particular Bible scholar says. He just went back to the word of God. And told them what God said, what God prophesied, what God promised. Interesting, isn't it? And then the fourth uh, way that uh, he was accredited, that Peter mentioned, was that he was exalted to the right hand of God. 
And you know, again in that little passage from 29 to 35, the word promise is mentioned again. And the promises of God are so vital and so important that, that Peter is mentioning about uh, how David was promised that he would have an heir on, at the throne. And again, those have been fulfilled. But he, he showed from scripture that this was fulfilled. So Peter builds up this picture piece by piece about who this man of Nazareth really is. And now we get to verse 35 and, and the picture's complete. What did it reveal? What did the picture reveal? What was the point of Peter standing up and, and giving this message? Verse 36, Therefore, therefore, let all Israel, who? All of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, if you know anything about the Jews and the Jewish nation and the Jewish uh, history, that word Lord, who did it belong to? God. That's his word. And Christ, what was that? That was the, the, the term for the anointed one, the one God promised he would send. And what did they do? They crucified him. The people of God had been reminded from God's word, from God's word, where they're at. And that's, and that's important, you know. God's word's important because, again, it's not personal opinion. It's not anything, you know, that, that was thought up. It wasn't make-believe. It wasn't fables. It wasn't legend. It was a message from God. And those, those things, Lord and Christ, were very precious to the people of God at that time. And so here's this crowd. I don't think they were confused or perplexed any longer. I really don't. The scriptures doesn't tell us that. Because the evidence was overwhelming. The evidence could not be contradicted. Why was that? Very difficult. Very, very difficult to argue with the, the word of God. I know because I used to try it all the time when I was a young believer. Oh, that can't be right. And I would try really hard to prove God's word wrong. I succeeded this many times. <laughs> Zero. Can't be done. And so here they are. The picture's complete. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the promise of God that they were waiting for. He was the Messiah. They've come to this realisation. He was the Christ, the anointed one. Peter had convinced them. He was 
their king. And they crucified him. It's terrible to think that, or, or it's terrible to, to think, how could, how could God's people have got it so wrong? How could they? They had the law. They had the prophets. They had, they had a rich heritage. They had the patriarchs. That was mentioned in the reading as well. They had everything that God intended them to have. So they wouldn't make a mistake. So they wouldn't be ignorant. And yet here they are in verse 36, crucified the promise of God. Now, we could spend an awful lot of time critically examining what actually happened. You know, where they went wrong, which prophecy they got wrong, and why did they interpret it that way? Why didn't they see when the Lord was doing the things? Why weren't they listening? We could spend a lot of time doing that. We could spend a lot of time in trying to find fault. You know, whose fault was it? You know, who can we blame? That goes right back to Eden, doesn't it? Who can we blame? Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the servant. We could have spent, and and we could could even spend some time in looking at the history, the culture, the world trends of what was happening at the time. It wouldn't be wrong to do that, you know, because listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10 says, Now these things, Paul writes to 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 the New Testament church, to people like us, he says, now these things occurred to Israel as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things that they did. And if, they, and if the people that got that epistle from Paul didn't quite get it there, in verse 11 of the same chapter, you now these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. That's talking about Pentecost. It's talking about Montmorency 2.17. So it would, it, it would be pertinent for us to examine how Israel got there in light of First Corinthians chapter 10. But that's for another day because the text here doesn't allow us to do that because it goes on. In verse 37, we're focused on a response. The Spirit has come, and one and another task of the Spirit, which was read, I think it was is Elaine, maybe I might, might be wrong, but the, his task was to convince of guilt and sin. John sixteen. I was going to read it, but it's already been read. And this is the first occurrence of this thing that the Spirit is tasked to do, happening here. Right on the ball. The Spirit is right on the way. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Teaching, convicting. They were cut to the heart. God's people. The child of God, anyone who's God-fearing, will always know when they're out of step with God's will. I always know when I'm out of step with God's will. He lets me know very clearly. I don't always respond as I should. I have to admit that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it. I'm not making light of it. I'm just telling you the truth. And I'm sure it's true of you too. I'm no different from you. So I'm sure the Lord lets you know when you're out of step of his will as well. Now that's a nice way of putting it. Because if we're out of step with God's will, we're sinning. That's it. That's the not so nice way of putting it. 
And he lets us know. He doesn't want us to remain in that condition or in that situation. So he lets you know. Raph, look what you're doing. Stop. The third thing that the Holy Spirit is, is tasked to do is to convict. And the realisation of the crowd then was, what shall we do? They've heard Peter say all those things. They were reminded of what God had promised them in Scripture. And they've been brought right to the point where they are convinced, convicted. They have sinned against God and and crucified the Messiah. What are we going to do? You know, when you read this passage, it's sad, it's dark, and it's depressing when you get to, to verse 36. But verse 37, it all turns around. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's an upside now. You know, if you're, if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever sort of addiction you might have, it's a well-known fact that unless, unless you admit that you have that problem, you can't be helped. There's no hope for you. There must be an admission that you are in that situation and you need help to get out of it. That's what these people did. They admitted to the charges that were laid out. And they didn't make an excuse. They didn't try and point the finger at someone else and it was their fault. We didn't know. Pleading ignorance? No. What shall we do? They wanted to be helped. They knew that what was said was fact. That's what the Spirit does. tells the truth. What shall we do? And there Peter's response was very simple. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, no exceptions. You know, in the nation of Israel, there were always people that believed that the Lord was the Messiah. In fact, we have 120 plus Sometimes they wonder whether the 120 includes the disciples or the apostles or not. But anyway, there's at least 120 here that believed. And there there were others. But the nation, the nation was, was convicted of their sin and they needed to repent. I'm speaking again next week. I haven't got time to do the rest. It's really, really important, the next bit. I'm going to leave it for next week. I actually, I actually hounded Josh to give me two weeks when he asked me to speak on the first part because this is too important. I've only got two minutes. I can't tell you about repentance in two minutes. It's too important. Next week, we're going to look at from verse 37 to, to the end of the chapter and we're going to see who needs to repent. Who have we been talking about? We need to see why people need to repent. Why do the people of God need to repent? 
Very interesting. And then, this is the best part. So, you know, it's, it's, you think, I'm not coming next week, Raph. It sounds like it's going to be, you know, I'm not going to like that sermon. But here's the bit. What are the benefits and blessings when we repent? That's really important to remember that, you know, there's an upside. So I would urge you to come, not to hear me, not to hear me, to hear what God's word says. You know, Peter wasn't a great speaker. He wasn't. He was the leader. But the Holy Spirit used the words that he had, the words that were given to him by God with the power to have an effect on people's lives. We're going to open up God's word again next Sunday and we're going to look at repentance. Who needs to repent? Why we need to repent? And the benefits and the blessings of repentance. Thank you for listening and you've asked me to close in prayer. Yeah. Is that all right, Silky? Yeah, okay. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again this morning for the opportunity to gather together as your people. And we, Father, love the fact that we are known as your people. And Father, we confess this morning that at times we don't live that way. At times we don't think that way. Father, we pray that the things that we have heard from your word would encourage us to to look into your word and see the way we live, the way we think, the way we behave. Does it line up with your will? And Father, I thank you again this morning for the opportunity to come and remember and to worship and to be with our brothers and sisters here and have fellowship together. So we would pray, Father, that you would part us with the blessing. And we ask this in the Saviour's name. Amen.